0: Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 2. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of introducing the book of Exodus to us. and Really, what we did in that first week was we surveyed Exodus like it was a whole painting. And it is exhilarating when you see Exodus as a whole painting. It's large, it's full-on, it's loud, it's colourful. There's a lot happens in the book as you trace the story of what it means to be drawn out to drawn in, what it means to be drawn out of bondage, to be drawn into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an incredible book, and when you see it in its entirety, it is indeed exhilarating. And yet, with any painting, I believe, as Riley said to us last week, it's only when we pay attention to the details that it really starts to come alive. It's when you slow down and you look more intently at the author's intent and the artist's brushstrokes and colors and shadows and perspectives and themes that these paintings, these books then begin to come alive in our eyes. Well, this morning then, I want us to look at just 10 verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It says there that it's entitled, The Birth of Moses. But I'm calling this message... More than a basket. I'm aware this is a story you've probably heard many times. But I'm also aware that maybe you haven't seen it exactly like Moses wanted you to see it. Because when you realize it's more than a basket, it really does come alive. By way of background, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 22. And then we're going to read to 2, chapter 10. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you should let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes And dubbed it in bitumen, in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent a servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Lord, I love your word. I love the way it's structured. I love the way it it talks to us. Lord, this word is alive, it speaks to us, it has hands, it lays hold of us, it has feet, it runs after us. And Lord, I do pray that today as we gather around it, that it's your voice that we would hear, it's your voice that would come alive in our lives today, that the great I am that you are would speak to our souls today and we would see something of you. Open our eyes, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, desperate times, on occasions, lead to desperate measures. Desperate times, on occasions, lead to desperate measures, and sadly, and grievously, and indeed somewhat uninformed, that is without doubt the battle cry of Pharaoh, as Exodus chapter 1 comes to an end. Desperate times lead to desperate measures. So he was desperately worried about the Israelites. They are multiplying ever increasingly. And he was worried as the Pharaoh that if somebody, if some other nation ever opposes us, these Israelites could so easily join forces with them and overthrow us. He's fearful of what the Israelites have become over time as they've multiplied and already started to look like a great nation in terms of number. And so he completely, without judicial review, completely unprovoked, Decides to do everything he can to oppose the people of God. He begins by putting them into slavery. Imagine that. We're all fine right now, but overnight, somebody comes knocking on your door and puts you in chains. That's what happened to them. Pharaoh decided that if I can put them in slavery, then I can send the men off to work. And if I send the men off to work, then they can't make love to their wives, so there's not going to be any children. Bingo. But in chapter one, verse twelve, we read: "But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And a miracle of grace: the more these people were put in bondage and slavery, the more they multiplied, and the greater nation in numbers they became. So Pharaoh changed tack. He ordered the Hebrew midwives Shiphrah and Puah to kill every newborn son at birth. He commanded them that as these Hebrew people." Give birth. If it is a boy, I want you to kill him there and then. Imagine that. Pharaoh was the king. He was seen to the Egyptian people as a god. You couldn't defy him. But the Hebrew midwives did exactly that. They did defy him. They feared the maker of heaven and earth far more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they just simply wouldn't do it. And in chapter 1, verse 20, it says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. We see these people then growing in number. Whatever Pharaoh throws their way, they're growing in number and multiplying as a nation. So Pharaoh brings in the final solution. Just like Nazi Germany did for the Jews. He brings in the final solution, and he commands his people as Egyptians... If you hear the crying of babies, I want you to go into people's homes. I want you to break down their doors. And if that is a boy, I want you to take him and throw him in the Nile. That's the backdrop to this text. The king has put out an edict. Having failed in slavery and infant murder, he now turns to genocide and the final solution. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so the backdrop to this text could not be bleaker or darker or more sinister towards God's people. But against the darkness of that backdrop, we see a wonderful diamond of verses one to twenty one to ten, and it comes with this one simple message. That God is both good and sovereign towards his people, both in the big things and in the small. Against the blackness of the backdrop of Pharaoh commanding them to grab the sons and kill them and put them in the Nile. God reveals in his goodness and sovereignty towards his people that he cares about the big things and he cares about the small I have two points then this morning. Number one, the narrative retold. I want us to examine the text, get into the text, enjoy the text, relive the story together. And then number two, I want us to look at the narrative revealed. I want us to pay attention to the brushstrokes and the themes and the colors and the shadows. Because I believe if you're here today and you are a Christian, this text should be incredibly encouraging to you. As you see that in both the big things and the small, God cares for you intimately. And if you're not a Christian, it is my hope and prayer that even as we talk, you will believe before the Lord. You will see how much you are missing out and how much you need a Savior to draw you out so that you can be drawn into the people of God. And so that you may experience, like the rest of us, the intimate and profound care of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So number one then, the narrative retold, and indeed what a story is it is. Listen, I want you to imagine with me, get in on the story. I want you to imagine the horror that this time would have been for the people of Israel, which in comparison would have been you. The king has passed out an edict that if you give birth to a boy, every Sydney cider is commanded to break in to your home. Rip that child from your hands and throw them in the Nile. Imagine living with that type of pressure. Imagine the pressure of wanting to see a family grow, but being aware, but if this happens, and this is a boy, I'll surely lose him. This is genocide. Genocide. This is what it was like for the Jews to live in Nazi Germany. This is similar things going on here at this time. Imagine the horror that this would have meant. And yet as that, as a backdrop, we read this in verses 1 and 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Imagine the mixed joy and news it would have been when you discover your wife saying, hey, I'm pregnant. Imagine the joy of that, but also the horror knowing if that's a boy, what on earth are we going to do? They're going to take him, darling, and they're going to kill him. I don't know that I can protect him. I'm out all day. I'm a slave. I'm gone for weeks at a time. And yet they did give birth to a boy. For nine months, it would appear they managed to keep the pregnancy at least somewhat quiet. But after nine months, they gave birth to a boy. Jockeybed is the name of Moses' mother. Amram is the name of Moses' dad. He's actually not the firstborn child of the family. It's a family of five. So they have Miriam, who's around 6 to 12 years old. Aaron, his brother, who's around 3 years old. It would appear that this is a new edict from the king because Aaron's fine. It's for new boys. They're the ones that are going to be killed. Well, they give birth to this baby and you can only imagine the fear that they must have had as that child comes out and they realize it's a boy. Immediately imagine the intense need to keep that baby quiet. Because if the neighbor's here, they're coming in. And they're going to get your boy, and they're going to kill your boy. Because the king, who is a god to them, has commanded them to do that. Imagine the pressure on Jockey bed each and every day when that child cries to try and stop him, to try and care for him, to rock him, to stop him making a noise. Imagine what that would actually feel like as a mum. Dad's gone, he's in slavery. You are there alone trying to work this out with a 6 to 12-year-old little girl and a 3-year-old son and a baby who keeps crying. And imagine the fear that you would have as a mother that she would have no doubt had as she realized the harsh reality that as the weeks are going on and they have kept him a secret, surely if the Egyptians do break in, they won't just kill him, they're likely to kill Aaron and Miriam and her as well. Imagine the pressure you would feel as a mother. And yet for three months, they did indeed keep this boy quiet. See, it would appear that Jochebed feared the Lord more than she feared Pharaoh. She feared the Lord, the heaven of earth, and she, she knew that he is good, he is faithful, he is kind. Surely he will step into us. Surely he will help us. It says in Hebrews 11 verse 23, in the Hebrew Faith Hall of Fame, it says, "By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king 's edict. Isn't that wonderful faith. they weren't afraid of the king 's edict. It doesn't mean they weren't anxious, they weren't struggling, they weren't aware that this is going to be difficult, but she knew, we've got to keep him quiet. We can't kill him. We can't let the Egyptians have him. So for three months, they kept him quiet, but she was only too aware that now he's three months old, this isn't going to work out anymore. They're going to find out. And she knew then it was time to entrust this child to the Lord. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and dowed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. See, this type of furniture, these baskets, would be commonplace in Egypt, and wood was actually really expensive at this time, but bulrushes grew everywhere all along the Nile. So people would make furniture out of bulrushes all the time. Papyri, which we know often is made, of, made to make paper, and at this time it also made furniture. And so she found a basket, whether she owned it or whether she bought it, I don't know, but she found a basket. And her part to play in this is she covered this basket in pitch and bitumen. She knew that she needed to make it waterproof. And then at three months old, she took this child, put it in the basket, put a lid on the basket, and carried him to the Nile and put him in. The Nile isn't a stream, okay? The Nile is over 4,000 miles long. The entrance to it isn't like Sydney Harbour. Isn't this beautiful? It's the Mediterranean Sea. This thing is massive. You ever heard of Nile crocodiles? There's a lot of stuff going on in this river. Yet she, full of faith, holds her this basket and places it in the Nile, effectively saying, Lord, I trust you. Well, Miriam can't stand the the, uh, suspense. She's 6 to 12 years old. She wants to see what's going on. So while mum, no doubt with tears in her eyes, heads back to the house, Miriam watches what's going to happen with this. And she watches her brother start to float down the river, no doubt wondering how far is he going to go? Is he going to get eaten by crocodiles? Is is he going to get lost in a whirlpool? Is he going to capsize? What's going to happen? And she would have watched as this basket moved along the river and then nestled once again into some reeds on the side of the riverbank. And she would have watched in wonder then to notice, oh my goodness, who is coming down to bathe beside my brother but none other than Pharaoh's daughter herself. This is a princess. This is a child of Pharaoh, a child of the king. And Miriam must have understood enough to know surely this is not going to end well. Her own dad, Pharaoh, has passed out the edict that all Hebrew sons need to be killed and thrown into the Nile. What's going to happen? Well, let's examine what happens. Verse 6. When she opened it, Pharaoh's daughter, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. See, she knew straight away because of the physical features of these babies. They were different. Israelites and Egyptians looked different. She would have known by the physical features and the clothes that he was wearing, the circumstances he was found in, the reality of circumcision on his body. She would have known this is a Hebrew. And she would have known exactly what her father had commanded all of Egypt to do. And yet it would appear the apple has fallen far from the tree. Because she is not a dad. And she takes distinct pity on this child. And she loves this child. Kevin Young says it this way. He says, whatever the risks might have or have not been for Pharaoh's daughter, this was a sweet, kind, maternal and honorable thing that this princess did. If Moses' mother was courageous and creative, and his sister was resolute and resourceful, then his adoptive mother was surely powerful and full of pity. She was in high places, but she knew compassion. Isn't that beautiful? The baby floats down the Nile, comes into the reeds, just where the, the princess of Egypt is bathing. And when she sees the child, she takes pity on him. And it's clear from verse 10 that right there she adopted him because she gave him a name. When you name somebody in this tradition, they're yours. And she called him Moses. Which in the Egyptian language simply means born of or son. She's saying to this child, you're mine now. You're home. You're safe. I will care for you. I will be your mother. And you will be my son. Well, as all that takes place, Miriam then, this six to twelve year old young girl, um, older sister of Moses, interjects. She says in verse seven, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Miriam's there. She's watching. She sees that, my gosh, Pharaoh's daughter is not going to drown my brother. She's just given him a name. It's clear that she's adopting him. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Can I, can I help you? I'm just wondering. Um, this is a, like a baby, and he's, he's kind of one of us. And Do you, do you want me to get a Hebrew lady to, to nurse him for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, go. So Miriam runs back to her mom, Moses' mom. Hey, you never guessed what happened. Come with me. You are not going to believe it. Come with me. And they all come running back. And Pharaoh's daughter says to, says to Moses' mom, Yeah, would you? would you wean him for me? Would you care for him? Would you nurse him for me? My friends, behold the kindness and compassion of God to Moses' mom. This boy is going to be coming back. You know, in this tradition, you would be nursing a child for three to four years. So for the next three to four years, you would be caring for this child. And note, verse 9, she's even going to be paid for it. <laughs> this is the irony of the Lord, is it not? So this child is now back home. He's going to be paid for and funded by Pharaoh's daughter himself. And then comes verse 10, part A. When the child grew older, she, meaning Moses' mom, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. You know, that would have no doubt been a bittersweet day for Jockey Bed. For the last four years, she's been caring for her son, and she loves him. She's been able to train him in that time, in the way that he should go. She's been able to teach him what it means to be a Hebrew. She's loved him. She's sown her whole life into him. And she has to give him to Pharaoh's daughter. Pretending in effect that she's not his mother at all. It would be bitter. But it would also be sweet because in that moment she would know, my son is safe now. He should have died four years ago. But now he's in Pharaoh's home. And he's not just in his home. He's a grandson of Pharaoh. Pharaoh and a son of the princess. He will be cared for and educated and helped and fed and overseen and protected by the entire nation. So it would be a bitter moment, but it would also be a sweet moment for her. You know, you can see why, when you examine this text and the story, why they make movies about it. Because it is a great story just by itself. When you just examine the story by itself, it's like, man, this is amazing. But I submit to you, if that's all you see, you haven't seen the half. So I want to now move to the narrative revealed point two. You see, what this text shows us time and time again is the goodness and sovereignty of God as it relates to the affairs of people. It isn't just a story about a basket and a little boy. It's a story about the goodness and sovereignty of God and how he cares for us in the big things and in the small things. And in that regard, it shows us three different things about the Lord and how in his goodness and sovereignty, he relates the affairs of his people. Here's the first thing. I don't want you to miss this. This is where it comes alive, okay? Get excited. This is coming. Pay attention to the brushstrokes. First thing it shows us is, number one, from start to finish, salvation really is all of grace. Don't miss this. Because this is a glorious, glorious theme in these verses. Listen, note, as we see here in chapters 1 to 2, God's people, the Israelites, they are in chains. They are in bondage to Pharaoh. There's nothing they can do. They are walking around as slaves. So let me ask you, what is it then that they bring to their salvation? Nothing. Nothing absolutely nothing. They are in chains. There's nothing they can do. They want to be freed, but they've got nothing to offer other than their chains. But note and pay attention. What is it that God brings to their salvation? Everything. Everything is from the Lord. This starts then with the raising of a deliverer. A human being, one young Moses that God will raise as a deliverer and a redeemer, who God in his grace will raise himself so that this young man, personally and humanly speaking, sees the release of over two million Israelites from bondage in Egypt. He does that by knitting him together in his mother's womb. In grace then, he keeps him safe through the pregnancy and delivery, even through the basket experience. And in sovereignty, then, he delivers him to Pharaoh's daughter herself. My friends, this was all the Lord's doing. It's all him. You know, the word that is used for basket in this text is a word, tebah. And you think, oh, that's interesting. I don't know, not too up to speed with Hebrew. How interesting. Here's why it's interesting. That's only used one other place in the Old Testament. And in both places, it's translated as ark. What Moses is helping us see is in just the same way God saved Noah through an ark. It was all his doing, all his saving grace. Now he saved me as a small child when I was just three months old through an ark. My mom put me in an ark and God kept me safe. He closed the lid on the ark and he led me all the way to Pharaoh's daughter where I was safe. Where I'd be raised in Pharaoh's own house where I'd be trained in literacy and argument skills and understanding and education, which, humanly speaking, would help me topple the very Pharaoh himself. This was all a divine setup. What is it that Israel brought to their salvations? Nothing. What is it that God brought to their salvations? Absolutely everything. And my friends, I want you to understand, Moses is great in this text. But one greater than Moses has come. 1,500 years on from Moses, one greater than Moses would be born. And yet, like Moses, this child, this baby, who we now know is called Jesus, would be born in very similar circumstances. He too would be born under a death sentence. Herod the Great, a tyrant as wicked as any pharaoh ever had been, was discerned, to kill the promised king. He had heard about this promised king, and so he manipulated a census. He arranged that all people would be back to where they were from, which would be in Bethlehem, and he always knew that it had been prophesied that the future king to come would be born in Bethlehem. And he knows that this child's going to be born around this time, 2,000 years ago. And so he commands, as he hears the news of this baby allegedly being born, the entire army is to go in and slaughter the sons of each and every family present. Because he wants this promised king dead. And yet God, in his grace, had already moved ahead. Through the wise men that told Mary and Joseph that they are coming to get your son. They fled to where? Egypt. Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt with Jesus. And they stayed in Egypt for some time. And when the coast was clear, they then moved to the promised land, to Israel, where Jesus himself would grow up in the small town called Nazareth. And he'd grow up and become strong, and he would be filled with wisdom and grace of the Lord Jesus himself. Why? Because he is the Savior of the world. It's what he claimed. As he grew older, he made it clear, you know why I've come? I've come to give my life, as a way, as a, my life away as a ransom for many. Why? So that you can be free. You know, for so long, for so many people, that just didn't make sense. What do you mean we need to be free? But what they didn't realize is the main teaching of the Bible is it isn't just the Israelites that are in bondage. No, in the natural state... Every human being is in bondage and slavery. In the natural state, the Bible is clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what happens when that happens? Ka-ching. You are in bondage to your sin. You are in bondage to its power, and you are in bondage to its penalty. So the Bible makes it clear, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody's sinned. Paul tells us then, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're in chains to your sins, chains to everything that was taking place in your life. And you freely then followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and you're all then by nature children of wrath. And you know what? You are without hope and without God in the world. What he's saying there is listen, prior to putting your faith in Jesus, you were in chains. Changed to the power of sin and changed to the penalty of sin and there's nothing you can do just like the Israelites in Egypt you're in bondage to Satan and there's nothing you can do but then we discover a redeemer came a deliverer came and Jesus made it clear listen put your faith in me and I will set you free I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Believe in me as your Lord and Savior. You know what happens? Those chains, you're forgiven of your sin. You're redeemed by the King of Kings. You're drawn out to draw in into a relationship with Him. You can know heaven is your home. Because in a very moment, through faith in me, you have been forgiven and your chains have been broken. Church, what is it that you then brought to your salvation exactly? Let me tell you, nothing. Your chains, that's it. Oh, now I think I read my Bible. Sure, yeah, you did. After he broke your chains. Oh, well, I think I prayed. Mm-hmm. After he broke your chains. It's all him. It's all a work of grace. Past, present, and future, it's an entire work of his grace. What is it that you brought to your salvation? Nothing. What is it that he brought to your salvation? Absolutely nothing. Everything. And all that is right here in this text, which is way more than a basket. It's a story of how salvation is all of grace. Look, it's all him. It's all him. In the meantime, the Israelites are just there in chains. Nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. God says, there's something I can do. I'm going to raise a child. I'm going to care for him. And he's going to redeem you. Salvation, my friends, from start to finish is all of grace. That's not all we see in this text. Number two, we also see that in his battle with evil, God always wins. I love this. We're going to see this a number of times through Exodus. I love it. I'm going to get excited about it each and every time. God never, ever loses. It's one of the reasons why I like um, all the C.S. Lewis stuff, because Aslan always wins. Well, Aslan is always Jesus in the texts. Jesus always wins. Every single time, God wins. Listen, Pharaoh was an evil and wicked man who passionately hated the plans and promises of God towards his people. He wanted to physically oppose them with all his might. So it began with slavery. Listen, I'm going to enslave them so there's nothing God will be able to do. There's no way they'll be able to multiply. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, I'm going to murder their child. I'm going to get the Hebrew midwives to murder their boys. I'm going to shrink the nation by doing that. Okay, that didn't work. The final solution, genocide. I'm going to all my people to break down the doors of their homes and kill their firstborn sons. And The next thing we know, we see a Hebrew child floating down river and growing up in Pharaoh's house. I think the last laugh is his, do you not? Philip Rykin in his wonderful commentary says it this way. He says, At the very darkest moment of Israel's captivity... When evil was rampant and the tyrant seemed to triumph, that very moment God was working in history to save his people. His plan called for a little child to be born in secret and then floated down the river right to Pharaoh's doorstep. In his triumph over evil, God displays his divine sense of humor. Ironically, this child once doomed to death by Pharaoh's decree would become the very instrument of Pharaoh's destruction and the means through which all of Israel escaped not only Pharaoh's decree, but all of Egypt itself. For indeed, Pharaoh was foiled again. And so he was, was he not? Pharaoh was foiled again. God always wins. And my friends, I think we need to hear about this in our time more than ever. And I think if you're under the age of 20, you really need to hear this. Because you are being raised in a generation that is so pessimistic about the future. And I get it. It's a global world now. You're looking at stuff online all the time and you see, man alive, it's a difficult world out there. Nations seem to be falling out. Nuclear weapons seem to be rife. Stuff like 9-11 seems to happen all the time. There are Christians being slaughtered all across the world for their faith. It's hard to look at the future with sort of optimism, you know. And even in our nation, we're not being opposed to what we believe. But I submit to you, subtly, we're starting to be. This nation is ever increasingly taking on anti-biblical standard on things. And we are so tempted to be sucked into, I think it's okay. It is not okay. It's happening all the time. And it can be so tempting, I think, to look on at the world and think, man, where is this going to be? Where are we going with this? We're just going to be wiping each other out. Isn't there even going to be any place for Christians any, anywhere in the world? How's this going to go? Well, my friends, I want to encourage you. God always wins. He always wins. You don't need to look out the world with panic. You need to look up to God and realize he always wins. He is always involved in the world. He's always involved. He's always busy, ordaining different things to take place at different times. Why? Because ultimately, he's always going to win. His redemption plan is always going to go forward. You see it all the way through the Bible. You see it here in the book of Exodus. God has just set his deliver in Pharaoh's house, the very man, that decreed that all these children had to be killed. God always wins. We see Jesus hanging on a cross with everybody looking on and mocking him. Surely this is a tragedy. Boom, we finished it. No. No, you set, him, you set it up. He triumphed in that moment. He rose as the King of kings and Lord of lords. You divinely set it up so that it was ordained for you to kill him just like that. Why? So he could give his life as a ransom for many. He always wins. In the book of Acts, they start opposing. Jesus himself says, Listen, I want you to take the gospel. I want you to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. What happens? Within a month, Stephen is stoned. I mean, seriously, we hear these stories and we think, Oh, yeah, I know that happened. No, listen, you imagine Riley preaches the gospel, and next week we're here, he got stoned this week. This was real life for them. There would be a distinct temptation in that moment, would there not, to think, Well, surely we're done. I mean, this isn't working out like we thought. But no, the stoning of Stephen would be the stones that started his tsunami because the gospel started to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, the more God's people were persecuted, the more they started to spread and proclaim. That led all the way to Australia where we proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, do we not? Listen, God... Always wins. So I want you to encourage you as a church, be faithful to him. Stand firm, be still, and know he is God. You don't need to walk in fear. God always wins. My friends, God is both good and sovereign towards us in the big things, isn't he? Without any doubt. He's in control in the world. He's intimately involved. And he's in divine control of our great salvation. The biggest thing we needed was to be broken free of our chains. He did that. But you know what else? He is intimately bothered about all the little things in our life as well. And I don't want you to miss this. Because it is little all the way through these ten verses. He's not just bothered about the big boom. He's bothered about the details. He's bothered about the details in all our lives. See, in verse 1, we read that both of Moses' parents are Levites. And you can just miss that and think, oh, that's really interesting. That's a bit more than interesting. Because God tells us further on in the passage that all of God's mediators and intercessors for his people will all need to descend from the tribe of Levi. He's basically affirming his own law before even giving the law by setting it up this way. Then in God's grace, he protects Moses for three months. If you are a parent, do you know how hard it would be, for example, to keep a child quiet? It's a nightmare, is it not? For three months, God gave his mum grace to do exactly that. No one broke the house down. God then saved young Moses in the ark, in this basket as he went along the Nile. So many things could have happened to that small child along the way. And then God guards the basket right into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter who just happened to be bathing at that very minute when the basket turned up. Pharaoh's daughter then names him Moses. Which as I said before in the Egyptian means born of or son. But in the Hebrew the same name means... To draw out. She knew that. And it was a play on words, even in calling him son. But she had no idea that this would be the one that God would raise to draw his people out of Egypt. But God knew that. So he gave her the name to give to young Moses. And then what grace, what fingerprints of grace you see when Moses returned to his mother for three to four years care for him and love on him. And what grace that must have given to the mom when after three to four years, he, she, she hands him to Pharaoh's daughter, no doubt painfully hurting, but knowing he will be safe now. He will be cared for and protected by the king himself. Friends, sovereign grace, I want to encourage you. God has not changed. He's not changed one bit in the way that he operates towards his people. And that then, my friends, includes you. Through Jesus Christ, you are an heir with Moses. Do you know that? It's not like God's just saying, oh, I'm paying special attention to Moses because I really need him. No, it's just an illustration of how he cares for all of us that are his people. He's not just caring for the big things. He's caring for the little things. He's intimately involved in the little things. And if you want to know how God feels about you, well, Jesus tells us, In Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. For even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. He's not just saying, hey, that's the way God the Father feels about Moses. He's saying, that's the way God the Father feels about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head, which for some people is you know, easier than others. But the point is, he's intimately involved. He's intimately involved in what is taking place. This doesn't mean that life will always be easy. No, as sure as sparks fly up, troubles fall. Things happen in our lives that are difficult. But what it does mean is that God is always intimately involved in our lives. And what it does mean is that we can know that in all things, he will work together for our good. Because he's intimately involved. Intimately interested in our lives. Listen, I want to encourage you then, if you're here today and you're walking through a health challenge. Something that you can so easily think, I don't know where God is in this. I want to encourage you, keep looking up. Because he's right there with you. He's right involved with you. This isn't a surprise to him or a shock to him. He is there to help help you. He's not just wanting to be bothered in good and sovereignty in the big things. He's good and sovereign in the small things as well. Maybe you're walking through a relational challenge or a family challenge. Listen, I can't promise you as your pastor that it's all going to work out shiny and rosy for you. I can't. But what I can promise you is he is good and sovereign in the details of each and every part of it. And he's with And he's involved. And he will work together all things for the good of those who love him. So keep looking up. Keep crying out to the Lord for grace. Lord, I trust you. Do you not think that it was hard for Jockey Bed to take that child and put him in the Nile? What faith. Lord, I trust you. Do we think for a minute if we'd stopped her and said, Hey, how are you feeling about this? Are you okay with this? Do you think she would not be sharing with tears how this is the hardest day of her life? But she had faith. She kept looking up. My friends, maybe you're walking through another challenge. A challenge of the season you're in, or the career you're in, or finances, or relationships. I don't know. I just want to encourage you to keep looking up. Because he's got you. He holds you. And he will work all things to your good and his glory. Fact. And if you don't believe that, What you're saying is, God, you're a liar. And I don't believe that's true for a moment. Stand firm on the truth of God. Stand firm knowing that he has you. Be still and know that he is God. My friends, I want to encourage you. What we have here, I believe, is way more than a basket. It's a story that helps us see that God is both sovereign and good in the big things and in the little things. So may we find our delight in him and our peace in him. And may we keep looking up. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it does come alive in our hands and in our hearts. And Lord, you are so faithful. You don't allow your word to return to you void of interest. But you capture our hearts and you open our hearts. You show us your glories and you show us how you care for us with intimacy. Lord, did you pray then for all the folks here? Lord, would they just grow in their trust for you as they see this reality? Would they find a sweet, sweet peace in you as they realize you have broken the chains of bondage in their lives? You've taken care of the biggest, most important thing in our lives by saving us. And now as your children, as people who have been drawn in, you're involved in every small detail. So Lord, would we trust you. And in him, may we find a sweet, sweet peace. In Jesus' name, amen.